Hello everyone, I'm Julius Galstraten, student business psychology and TEDx organizer. And I'm Miklas Kok, student economics, law and business administration and also a TEDx organizer. And today we welcome Tom Vos, PhD researcher at the Faculty of Law, KU Leuven, and also the founder of the LCM Student Association. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yes, welcome, Tom, and welcome to all of you listening today as well. We are here again in, in our beautiful setting with our uh, third live guest and uh, with the fireplace at our right-hand side and some, some Christmas decorations already. We are the 11th of November today. It's um, the the Armis, uh, how to say in English, but... Uh, Armistice. Armistice, yeah, okay, perfect. And uh, it's a day off, but we very appreciate you, Tom, to making time for this and, uh, and to welcome. talk about... I think uh, neg negotiation, in essence, uh, as, as that is your main expertise, and it's also tightly linked to the aforementioned Student Association, LCM. Mm. Maybe that's a good start point to, to begin what it is exactly, LCM. I think Miklas is a part of it uh, as of this year, <laughs> so that's interesting uh, to hear his experience as well, maybe. But uh, what it is that you do, and um, yeah, a, qu a quick... Uh, Take us through the uh, association. Sure. Um, so LCM Student Association is a student association that I founded when I was still a student uh, in my, I think my first year of law, uh, of the Master of Law, um, I should say. And basically, we we wanted, with me and a couple of friends, um, we wanted to learn more about negotiation, mediation, but there wasn't weren't really enough courses or or professional supervision on on doing that. Uh, even when we looked into it, also not at other faculties, and then we decided to, to launch our own student association about negotiation, mediation, and other soft skills. And then I think we're now in our seventh year of, of teaching workshops to our students, um, and so that's what we do. We, we teach workshops in negotiation, mediation, soft skills to students of the KU Leuven, but also sometimes from other universities. We have one student, uh, one alumni, who graduate from the, the Royal Military Institute, um, who is now at Paracomando. Um, so we we have very broad range of students from all faculties, um, law, business, um, psychology, mm -hmm. um, you name it, uh, we have it. And um, now I, I'm, I'm not longer involved in the board. I don't organize uh, practical things anymore, but I still teach some of the workshops there. Do, do you think there is a lack of knowledge about negotiation and, and mediation in general? I, I think that's definitely the reason why we founded the student association. I, I think that's still true that not enough people know about what is what is negotiation when we talk about it, what's the importance of it, and it wasn't sufficiently integrated in the, the curriculums at university level. I think it's it's changing now. People are more and more realizing how important it is. There's a new mandatory course on negotiation mediation at the law faculty. I think other faculties are also thinking about introducing these courses. And um, we're seeing more and more enthusiasm with the students for our student association as well. So I think people are starting to realize it, um, but I think um, everyone should be able to negotiate. So that I think it's uh, mm -hmm. super important. Yeah. You, you said before um, to teach students about what it is Mm -hmm. negotiate and for me that's like a very good question because it's so broad right and uh, yeah if you tell me um if you ask me do you negotiate i would say yes it's like part of everyday life and it's interwoven with life mm. at, at every point in your life so how do you tackle it in lcm what is 
your focus point or do you take it as broad as maybe maybe it's good to just ask what is negotiation for you yeah uh, and actually that's with. that's the first question we probably ask in our first workshop um what is negotiation we ask our students and i think you're exactly your intuition is exactly right that it's it's a very broad subject and we also like to keep it very broad uh, we say negotiation is uh, every discussion that is aimed at reaching an agreement um so that can be negotiating with your friends, with your boss, with your coworkers. Within a team, um, you're always negotiating uh, for who does what, um, what are our roles. Um, so you're, you're, and, and this is also the quote from a famous book on negotiation, getting to yes, like it or not, you are a negotiator. And, and then we added to that, so you better be good at it. Um, mm -hmm. And because it's such a broad subject it all allows us to to talk about a lot of other stuff as well such as um, teamwork uh, leadership um, I think there's a lot of negotiation in being a leader um, it's also about uh, public speaking sometimes um, it also has links with negotiation so that's also something that we cover uh, sometimes in in our workshops um, and in a broad range of, of scenarios. So in the business world, also personal negotiations, um, in international political environments, negotiations. Um, we have cases that in all of these fields, and so we try to give our students a broad range of exposures to negotiation simulations. How did you get so interested in this particular subject? Because it's not the first thing we think about um, as a student and uh, then it pops up in, in your head yeah now i will found a student association yeah it, it it is it is a bit uh curious um i re i remember that we had a professor in in law school uh Verbeke, who teaches um like a course on property law and contract law and one of his classes is actually about negotiation because he's also the professor of negotiation at our law faculty and he started talking about some of the books that, that are famous in, in negotiation theory. And then I, for some reason, I got interested, started reading those books, and they're super easy to read. It's, it's getting to yes, beyond winning, difficult conversations. And you read about it, and for, for some reason, it really hit the right spot with me. It was immediately like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. This is intuitively what I've been thinking already, but now I have a, now I have a framework of how I can apply this. Um, but the problem was that I, 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 I thought there wasn't enough opportunities to practice it in a safe environment where you get feedback from more experienced people and that's what we're trying to do with the student association. Mm. What's like the, um, you say it, it was close to my intuition, but I was nice having a framework. What is like the, if you maybe talk to me like a negotiation rookie, I don't know. Mm. Uh, what is like the rookie mistake that a lot of people make? What is like for you a valuable insight that should be more on top of mind of people that you say this will improve your negotiation style with, by miles if you apply this? Um, so basically you're asking what is the, the, the basic insight that it's the most important skill yeah, for a negotiator? What are the things that we yeah. do wrong on a daily basis that we should know, for example? I, I'm not sure that people do a lot of things very wrong. I think there's a lot of good intuitive negotiators. I'm not sure if you're one of them, but yeah, yeah. so far you don't seem to be <laughs> doing a bad job. So um, I think um, some people have um, some kind of conception that negotiation is about um, winning winning from the other party and that you need to be tough and you need to be um, prepared not to give in 
and they're and if you tell them well i teach negotiation they say like oh i i hope i'm not gonna negotiate with you then because you will probably rip me off or something like that or you will know tricks that i can use and i think what's interesting is that the the, the theory that we teach the the principled method of negotiation is not about that at all it's 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 actually helpful if the other party is also a good negotiator and i think that's fundamental insight of of it's more looking at negotiation as a way to collaborate um that's probably the most important and secondly i think uh it's that negotiation is 90 percent about empathy and active listening and and how to accomplish that and i think that's how how these theories taught those insights on how to do active listening and practicing that every day is probably the most important skill as a negotiator and what I've learned from from learning about negotiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also linked to, um, to, to convincing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that's the, the main misconception that you try to be in the convincing position. You try to be... Uh, the one that kind of dominates and silence the other the mm. other parties, uh, in which you can use the situation to your advantage to get what you want. Um, maybe that's a style that a lot of people have, or or maybe not not consciously, but um, yeah. but I would say that's maybe not a healthy way of negotiating. But well, is w- is like the the outcome the most important part, or the way you get there as well? Ooh, that's uh, a there's a lot of questions in, yeah, in there that to explore. That's that's yeah. fine. I I think. Uh, to start with the last point first, I don't think the outcome is the only thing that matters. I think um, we try to teach, or when I teach negotiation, I try to teach the students that it's super important to have your own reputation as a negotiator as well, because we're often repeat players. It's a very small world, especially if you think about Belgium, such a small country, especially in, in fields like law or, or the business world, you will meet people again and again. And if you have a negotiator, if you have a reputation as a negotiator of ripping people off, probably won't help you. And then you also have your own ethical norms and your ethical compass of what do I think is, is, is fair to do to people. And you want to be able to look yourself in the mirror. Um, so I don't think outcome is the most important uh, thing there. On the other hand, uh, we also teach our students that there's always this balance uh, or this tension in negotiation between being empathetic, listening to the other side and trying to understand where they're coming from, but also um, being assertive and making sure that you are asserting your own perspective and trying to convince the other party with your arguments. And there's a tension and, and, and part of the difficulty is managing that tension. What we teach, however, is that it's often very difficult to convince somebody who isn't willing to listen. And if you show them that you've listened to them before and that you've really understood them, it's also easier for them to listen to you and then it's actually easier to convince them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are also a PhD researcher mm. and I was wondering if your research is related to negotiation as well? Actually, at the moment, it's it's not really and um, that's something I'd like to change in the future. Um, so my, my PhD researcher is more in the field of, of corporate law and law and economics and and I, at the, and I think the closest link between the, the two fields of negotiation and, and, and corporate law is that my research is about corporate transactions, about um, companies raising capital from investors and, and how you um, structure those deals. 
And of course, there's a lot of negotiation happening there. And I do look at the incentives of each party. So there's there's some something linked to it, but it's not the focus of my research. Um, but in, in my future professional career, I think I'd like to work on these transactions and, and there's a like a heavy element of negotiating everyone's interest in, in such a transaction. So there's a, there's a link um, and sometimes I can introduce concepts from my negotiation background in, in my research, um, but it's not that I am able to do it on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, so you read a lot about negotiation mm. and you, yeah, you did also some research, but did you also practice uh, negotiation into, into real life? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I, I'm, of course, it's still in the, the early stages of my career. I'm 27 now. Um, I, I have negotiated a lot, of course, um, because negotiation is everywhere. And um, I'm currently, for example, part of the faculty board of the Faculty of Law as an assistant representative. And there we negotiate with the professors of the faculty, the students, and try to come up with policies for the faculty, for example, on educational stuff, but also research, uh, personnel um, agreements. And I like that experience a lot because it's uh, often tough to... Uh, to represent the the interests of all the assistants, that's in, like an internal negotiation with your uh, with with the people you represent, but also with your team of other representatives and with the other side with or or co-negotiators at the faculty to try come up with policies that work for everyone. So I do a lot of negotiation there. Um, I've also volunteered as a mediator before. I studied a year in the United States um, and there during that period I I was a voluntary court mediator in a small claims court in Boston and and there I, I helped parties um, negotiate their disputes. So they would come to court uh, to get a judgment, uh, usually to get money back or something or they somebody owed somebody money or, or didn't pay rent or something like that. Uh, and right before they could appear to the judge, they were given the opportunity to to try and solve it through mediation. And, and I, I mediated cases like that um, with them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then they appear for the judge. And then you see how difficult it is for a judge to solve their, their issue because he doesn't have the time to listen to you um, as a mediator does. Um, but yeah, that's the... That's the reality. Uh, That's an interesting function, the, the mediator. And mm -hmm. uh, and there's also another word that pops in mind, and a moderator. And um, I often confuse these two. And w what is exactly the role of a mediator? I know few things that you shouldn't choose sides, for example. Yeah. That's probably the most important one. Yeah. Um, mediator is, we, we call mediation basically facilitated mediation. So we have a, a neutral third party who is independent, uh, impartial, who helps the parties reach an agreement. Um, and there's different models of mediation. You have facilitative mediation, which is the most common, I would say, which the one I was trained in. And there the mediator cannot give solutions to the party. So he never says, I think you should do this or that. He just listens to the parties, uh, help them communicate, gives them a, a process, a structure to the conversation. Um, maybe he does uh, caucuses, which is like separate conversation with the both parties um, to see whether an agreement is possible, to 
coach them on on how they could present their their position their interest to the other party but he never will say there's a solution now there's also other models of mediation such as evaluative mediation where you do give your own thoughts about the case uh, as a mediator um, but of course that's more different uh, uh, more difficult um, because you need to there's a risk that you will lose your impartiality if you offer a solution to the parties yeah it, it seems like yeah. a very tough spot to be in right Me- yeah. a mediator because often i know there i, I had like a course organization no decision making and change mm. uh, given by someone you know i think martin Uman. yeah i know him yeah, yeah and uh, really insightful and also uh, some practices that that came above was uh, mediating and often in conflicts that have build up to the point where you need a mediator but because that's mostly the last resort kind of thing mm. and then you're you have the risk getting caught in crossfire right so yeah. h- how do you do that and how do you especially also as a second point not choose sides because you always have like uh, an opinion i assume of who you agree to most and how how difficult is it for you to not out that part of you yeah, I, I think that's the the most difficult thing as a mediator, and that's why when when I did mediation, we were trained for hours and hours on on cases like this, and they really try to push us to give to lose it, uh, the impartiality. But you, after some point, you get used to it. Um, it's it's not easy, but it's it's. And that we we also also worked always worked in a, in a team of two, so did a co-mediation, um, and that helps because if you're stuck and you're you feel yourself you're trying to say something um, that you maybe shouldn't say, then your your co-mediator can actually pick in and mm. and maybe ask a question again, and and that's actually one of the most useful things that you you have a structure that you start with, and and basically your role is to ask questions to get out all of the interests of the both parties and then get them to talk to each other. And if you know that that's your role and that it's not to solve their problem for them, it's their problem and they have to solve it, then it becomes easier. But sometimes you have, of course, you think you have the, the best solution in mind and it's very difficult not to to spill that. Uh, but, it, but it happens that you get accused as a mediator and it's the worst thing, of course, that the party says, well, on whose side are you actually? It's getting and worse as well then, yeah. Yeah, and then sometimes it helps to reiterate that um, the principles that you're not—that's not your intention. Uh, maybe take a break and and to calm down everyone's emotions. But sometimes it happens, and it's 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 impossible to to have a complete perception of neutrality. But it's it's a useful thing to strive towards. What's the toughest spot you've been in as a uh, negotiator slash mediator can you give an example um yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of examples these 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 kind of cases were that i mediated were not easy i I remember one of the most difficult ones um where where the parties just couldn't sit at the table i mean we, we we were i mean even getting to them to the room without yelling at each other was difficult and at some point you get I mean, a little bit afraid that they will start hitting each other and you have to be careful where you position yourself that they actually don't. Uh, it's a bit like a referee during a, a <laughs> soccer match. <laughs> yeah, you can actually compare it with that. And we, we tried to sit them down and I think we went through our opening statement as a mediator. We had one of the parties who started talking and the other person interrupted him and 
they couldn't listen to each other and they started yelling again and and, and we had to close down the mediation and, and and just admit that that conflict wasn't ripe for mediation yet they i think yeah. if if someone thinks about negotiation everyone thinks about two parties mm. uh, f trying to reach an agreement but i think there is a whole different side or if there isn't a whole different dynamic if, if there are more parties and i am wondering have you ever negotiated with more parties and two and yeah. if so what's the difference is there a different approach for those situations i think um that's that's a really good question um i i've done plenty of negotiations with multiple parties we i mean as i mentioned the faculty board is with a very broad range of, of people um there's also i i also run a ran a project once together with some other people where we wanted to uh, try what we called the consensus building approach and there we did simulations of of multilateral international organizations such as the 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 nato uh and i think the other one was the the, the oec no it was the g20 actually and we had students representing each of the the different countries and then we had neutral facilitators we called them um, you could compare them with a mediator and they also try to get everyone to agree. And I think what we learned there, what's different if you have multiple parties, is that you need more structure probably. And I think the more complexity, the more parties you add, the the more interventionist your facilitator or your mediator becomes in giving structure and uh, making sure that everyone is working productively. Uh, and you also have to give a little bit more autonomy to your parties that they will have to negotiate at some point between each other between themselves um, and you have to give them the responsibility and, and teach them how they negotiate with each other each other is it true that your position physically at the table has an influence on your negotiation position yeah definitely i think that's one of the the most important things we think about before going into negotiation mediation and i think usually if especially if you have a group of people it's it's good to have them not sitting on two sides of the table because you get especially if there are two sides in the, in the conflict, because then you, you already structure the, con the conflict as a very adversarial one, and that's what you want to avoid. Also, when I'm doing a mediation, I think uh, the, the best way is that if you have the, what the, the, the party sitting at the same side of the table, actually, and the mediator on the opposite side. So that's the easiest one, or if you have two mediators, they, them sitting next to each other in the opposite side of the table, we have the parties. That's how we would typically do it. And and that helps to create a mindset of we're actually working together to solve this problem. Uh, why are um, tables, negotiation tables, of, or I don't know how to call it, why it's always, uh, why it's never a circle? Because that w would s solve everything. <laughs> no, I, I remember... Um, the the negotiations at the, the King Arthur's table is was also yeah. on the table. So uh, it's 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 a it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is. I I guess we we're just not used to having a lot of uh, round tables. Uh, how how could that influence the discussion? Round versus rectangular. Um, like just on thinking on the top of my mind. Um, the, the the difficulty with round tables in large group is that you may sit too far away from some people and that you start having discussions with the person next to you and especially if, if for example you sit two of the most important parties next to each other at the, at a round table the other parties may feel 
excluded from the from the conversation because there it's very easy for them to just and it to talk between each other so yeah I, I really like this nudging that's what we're talking about mm -hmm. right this you have this okay content side of negotiation you talk about what you need to talk about and different styles but what if and and that's what is attractive to most people right this this nudging part and mm. the easy tricks to to uh, seduce people mimic their non non verbal behavior or mm. or i also heard if you're sitting next to your opponent or someone who disagrees with you if you have someone who disagrees with you sit next to that person and mm -hmm. then they're less the tendency is less to to speak up against you or for example the research that showed that if you repeat one argument extensively in a discussion, you uh, people are more likely to adhere to your argument mm. because they heard it many times. That's and yeah. how how valuable are those kind of tricks, or do you say that's like cheating? Or um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I like the question. I, I'm I'm not sure where the where the line is, um, especially with the last one. Like keep repeating your argument to try to i mean i mean i'm sure it works the question is of course is is are those things you want to use and i think our approach is that we we teach those tricks to students in a sense uh, there's also for example the anchoring effect that uh, the, the psychological bias that if you make a first offer in a negotiation uh, the other party is usually influenced by that. Even if you know it's ridiculous and high, it still dominates the conversation. And there's psychological research that people who make the first offer often do better. So that's an insight we teach our students. Um, and the other side, we also teach the disadvantage of, of doing that. Uh, coming in aggressively with a first offer may backfire on, on the reputation. Uh, sometimes you actually have no idea what you're talking about and you lose credibility as a negotiator. And I think that's that's a little bit the the best approach in, in my mind that you you think about using these tricks and 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 what their effect will be, but you also recognize their disadvantages, and you you don't lose track of of the authenticity of the conversation that you and your credi credibility as a negotiator. That that's probably the most important thing. Uh, do you think your physical appearance has a lot of influence? Uh, and I'm not talking about body expression, but mm. actually how some people look. I mean, maybe a female uh, with a female have a total different negotiation than a female with a male, mm. or a tall person with a with a uh, just a, an average sized person. I don't know. That's it's interesting. Uh, I I haven't done. I haven't seen many much research on that. Uh, I mean, there there's probably a lot of research on that, but I've I've not looked in looking into that. Um, just intuitively, I think there's men and, and women have widely different experiences in negotiation and probably respond differently uh, towards the op opponent or your counterparty in a negotiation. Um, I think it's probably, it, it matters and something to be aware of. And on the other hand, it probably shouldn't matter too much in the sense that you, some fairness norms sort of really dictate that you don't want to treat people too differently based on, on, on their appearance. Uh, and it's also something you don't have control over yourself. So yeah. Yeah, and consciously you're you're not aware yeah, you're not aware of it, but I mm. think it, it can play a role if you oh, yeah. if you negotiate with something someone who has let's say um, a piercing or, or a tattoo mm. it, it has an influence for some people. 
Yeah. And that that that's a pity, but and I, I'm wondering, are you also taking this in your courses in LCM or? Um, it, it's it's I think it's something we cover in our uh, in our workshop track. It's not usually the workshop I teach, but we teach a workshop on psychological biases. I think that's probably um, like prejudices, biases. Uh, um, the course was actually yesterday. Oh, it was yesterday. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's it, I mean probably much fresher in your mind than in mine. Uh, I I actually it's been a long time since I studied this, but. It's it's true, and I, I think what I remembered um, is that you have these biases, and even though you're aware of them, you you can't completely eliminate them. Um, and are there yeah. some other biases that we should be aware of? Um, Let, let's make a list. <laughs> what, what do you know? Come on, shoot. <laughs> well, there's definitely the overconfidence bias in the sense that everyone thinks that uh, they know with more certainty what they know i re remember that what we did this one exercise where you have to with 90 95 percent make 95 percent confidence intervals so that uh we did uh probably 20 statements and you had to get 19 of them in the range and you for example when was the the clockworks inv invented and you have to give a range and it had to be in there with 95 percent certainty and you could see that Everyone understood it. I mean, the people were intelligent enough to understand what it mean, meant. And still you have like accuracy of probably like 50% at most uh, rather than the 95% you have just because you're overconfident about your own knowledge. And I think that's, that's probably also happening in, in negotiations a lot. Um, it's also about um, something about people, how good they think they're driving us. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a really fun one. Yeah. Do you yeah. know more? But I know vaguely that, like, if people would estimate how how good that everyone thinks they're a good driver, but I obviously think that can be the case. I think the like question that. is that they ask, "Do you think you're a better driver than average?" So you, on average, oh, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. that fifty percent of the people should say yes, and it's. I think it's. I'm not sure what the percentage is, but it's way over fifty. I think it's seventy or. 80. And the fun, the fun part is that it's uh, particularly overestimated by young drivers. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. and actually they are the worst drivers. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that makes it's sense. funny that that you see um, if if more people than average think they drive mm. more than average, that's like. <laughs> yeah, it's a mathematical. No. <laughs> it's a mathematical, and it'll, like you know, it's untrue. Uh, and that's why it's so such a fun, fun finding. You know that people are overconfident about their driving for mm. sure. Also, mm. a relevant one in in like current context, hindsight bias. Yeah. Uh, Biden Trump election. Oh, I knew it all along. The typical phenomena. Yeah, that's a good one. And I think uh, another interesting one is is framing. Uh, that the way how you frame things is really important. Um, so for example, framing things as a gain instead of a loss uh, tends to be more acceptable yeah, the, the sunk cost as well yeah let's say you bought a ticket for 500 euros to fly to uh, I, I don't know miami or something but mm. you, you you don't want to go to miami because you're ill or i don't know mm. it's very hard to, to throw away the tickets and instead yeah. you will buy another ticket even more expensive to yeah. another destination you prefer yeah yeah and indeed that's also a classic one i think what's a really interesting read on this topic is uh uh, Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, mm. uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think probably every person who is somewhat interested in, in, in psychology of, of, of uh, biases um, should probably read that. And I think it's 
it's one we heavily draw up on and, and teaching negotiation as well. Yeah, with him, the core message is like, um, uh, what is it, type one thinking? Or how, yeah. how does he call it, type two? And yeah, yeah, type one thinking and type two. I think yeah. type one is the, the, the fast, intuitive thinking uh, where you react immediately and that's where the, the ones, uh, the decisions are made when we are biased. And then you have the, the thinking slow. It's when you have the rational thinking and you take the time um, and basically his thesis is that a lot of the time we are doing type one fast thinking when actually we think we are making rational decisions even though we're not yeah and his message according to me is more like to be aware of it and not yeah. to try to change it because we are all just part of nature and we can't change or be being as, yeah, as such exactly and if, if you would always do the slow thinking of course you would be very slow and, and it would take a lot of effort and uh, mental effort and yeah, that wouldn't be a fun way to live if you're always overthinking. Mm. Uh, so maybe in a different subject, um, we saw you um, studied after your um, master's degree here in um, Leuven. You mm. studied in abroad in the USA. Yeah. In the Harvard School, and we just had it. Uh, we just saw that talk about it, and we were just wondering how was it as a student <laughs> here in Leuven. Harvard is always something wow it's abstract uh, abstract yeah, it's a huge it's like brand the, yeah it's a summum yeah. of of the education in the world uh, according to a lot of students <laughs> is it like a myth or is it uh, real like uh, and we saw an extreme um, testimony with the ted talk someone who uh, who basically but I'm, i don't want to influence you first first your uh, testimony <laughs> and then the ted talk. I, i'm curious to hear what the ted talk was about whether it was really good or really bad I had a great experience in Harvard, and and you're right. It's a kind of a this 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 mythical institution. Like you, when you're thinking, I was applying to many universities and thinking of which one I was going to go to. And then somebody said to me, "Yeah, I mean, Harvard is the one you you tell your grandmother you're going to Harvard, and she knows what you're talking about. If if you tell her going to Stanford, she probably thinks like, what what are you doing there? Even though it's like as good as university probably yeah. uh, as Harvard, but um, so you did it for your grandma. <laughs> I did it for my grandmother uh, so that she's proud of me. And actually, Harvard is the, the place where negotiation theory was born in a way. It's often called the Harvard method of negotiation, although there were some scholars before and other, other universities also uh, teaching that style of negotiation. But it, it's actually there. They have the best professors in, in negotiation. And so for me, that was, in, this, in a sense, coming home because I had been working on negotiation for four years already and then I had to got to meet my idols in a sense the, the Robert Mnookin who wrote a book Beyond Winning which is like probably the second book you read on negotiation and you I my workshop teacher in, in, in Harvard was Sheila Heen who wrote a book on difficult conversations and she's probably like the third book you read on negotiation so it was really crazy to, to be able to learn from those people. And, and they basically, they teach a course in negotiation there for three weeks every day from nine to six. And in the evening, you prepare the cases and write in your journal what you learned. And next day, you start again and you do that for three weeks and, and with a small group of 20 people with an, this amazing teacher coaching you. And yeah, that's just such a great experience. Um, that yeah was a little bit of a dream come true although that's that's a that's a cliche of course mm -hmm. um so and and also the it was good to be a student again i'd been working for two years uh and 
uh, was fun to be a student again and, and to also meet these uh, all these amazing students uh, from Harvard, uh, both intellectually but also socially very stimulating period. Yeah. C- compared to the Belgian way of teaching, compared to mm. KUL, for example, um, because you studied at KUL yeah. main- mainly, and then you did, was it like a, a master after master's at, at yeah. Harvard or a PhD, part of your PhD? Um, it's a, it was a master's after master's, a master of laws, LLM it's called, um, and you have to have an initial master degree, which I got in Leuven, and then uh, two years into my PhD, I decided to suspend the PhD for a year, go to Harvard. Uh, and you have people from all ages there. It's um, You have people who came right, a- right after school, so 21, 22. And you have people in their 20s, 30s, even 40s who came to study there. And you study with all of them together. And basically, you're allowed to pick all of the courses from Harvard Law School, but also from the other schools. I took a course at the business school. Some people took a, at the Kennedy School of Government um, or at the art school even. Um, so it's yeah it's you it's really a year where you can explore all of your interests um freely i would say mm. and the, the way uh, your question was mm. how is it different yeah. uh to 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 leuven um i think it's it's of course a little bit of an unfair comparison because the just the, the amount of resource resources they have you pay uh $65,000 just to get in um for a year and then they get millions in, in donations from their alumni. And that, that shows, in a sense, that they have the, they're able to hire the best professors. They have uh, really individual approaches. I had a lot of seminars um, where you're sitting with a professor, maybe two professors even in a class of 20, 15 students, and you're just two hours discussing your ideas and the professor asking questions using the Socratic method and really challenging you to think about, okay, you're taking this position, but he will give you the counter argument or ask another student to give the counter argument to really make you think critically of, um, for me, it was the law often, but not only what the law is, but also what the law should be and making, trying to integrate other disciplines into, into law. So everything, about for for me it was a lot of law and economics uh, for example little side step side mm. side step what is the um, socratic um, was it socratic socratic method, uh, method? Uh, yeah. basically the idea is that you have a professor who will not tell you anything uh, who will just have you uh, find the truth um, as socrates uh, did uh, have the have you find the truth for yourself so if you say well i think the law should be this um uh, party A, the plaintiff should uh, get what he wants. Well, he will say, okay, why do you think that? And then he will start asking, okay, but don't you think that you could also look at it this way? And he he, he will challenge you until you are stuck in a way. But that's actually good because it shows you that there are some tough questions. And and the the idea is that everyone, the the whole student body, learns from uh, the not only the outcome, but also the process and uh, the, the process of thinking critically and having yeah. students debate and the professor debate with the students what is actually the best way to think about it. That's interesting and quite unusual. So uh, can, yeah. we, can we try it maybe here? Do, do you have a <laughs> way we can uh, try it out? That, that um, you practice it on us, for example, or is that too difficult? I could try. Um, 
give me a topic then. Um, what do you think, Miklas? Just uh, about, I don't know, what we're talking about, decision making? Okay. But let, let's take something or, controversial. Or, or what, what do you think of uh, quota in uh, in politics? That's a good, good question. Okay. So... Okay, so quota. What it basically means is that you have a certain amount of of people, groups of people that you certainly want in your education program. Let's say, right? Yeah. Uh, I would say it's um, on top of my head a bit unfair because it kind of kills meritocracy. Okay. And why why does it kill meritocracy in your opinion? Because maybe someone um, you you don't look uh, you don't look at the competency of a person, but more to the group to which the people belongs to, and maybe you give um, the advantage to people who are perhaps less competent because they belong to a certain group. Okay, so you're assuming that by giving preferences to one group, um, that you will have less competent uh, people in your program. Well, uh, n- not really. It's, it's just um, when it comes down to two candidates, for example, and mm-hmm. you have finalists who, um, I, I don't want to choose groups, but uh, who is part of a minority group, let's say, yeah. and someone who is part of a non-minority group. And let's say the um, it's clear or it's it's always difficult when it comes to finals, right? Because it's a tight race, but you see that the minority group gets the benefit of the doubt just because he belongs to that minority group instead of um, having the better profile. It's it's a thin and line. And don't you think that the, just the fact that the minority group showed up in the last spot uh, tight or almost tight with the second candidate, having overcome these barriers shows that he's probably more competent? Yeah, but the other one did too, right? So... Um, yeah, it's it depends on case, but um, I'm fighting here alone, Miklas. And back me up, <laughs> Miklas. Do you think that merit is the only thing that's important in so selecting, for example, your student body? No. Okay. What else is important? Um, to give an example to the minority group that it's possible to get it to get there. So showing to the minorities that actually your institution is inclusive, you're saying. Or yeah, in short term, yeah. and then hoping that it's another way of looking at the university, yeah, and to be an example for many people. So Miklas is arguing it's not only about merit and getting the best students, but also giving an example. You have a public function as a university of showing what it is that is actually that that everyone can achieve these features. Yeah, to to yeah. break through stereotypes actually. Yeah. And then, mm. but that that's maybe the first stage. And then afterwards, you have to recompensate that maybe and look back at your competence. Yeah. Because then you hope there are no minority, minority and majority groups yeah. anymore. And if we were to be doing the Socratic method now, I would try to mm. challenge Miklas again. Okay. And what does, what effect will that have on, for example, their students' feeling of self-worth knowing that they haven't been selected on on merit reasons and stuff like that but that's basically an illustration of the socratic method i have only asked questions sometimes a little bit leading questions that's what you do but you try not to give the answer right away to the students that's an other approach than universities here in belgium do yeah like we have up front we have the professor 
than 400 students most of the time passively listening to the professor so yeah. and i feel the initiative of the car 11 to change this and i see it happens during this covid crisis mm. and do you think covid this corona the corona crisis changed the way of educating here in at car 11 yeah or at belgium universities in general that's a good question and uh it, you see like a little bit of a attention there that some people have done more of it as as you've said and that that it's actually making it easier to participate and i think for example in the course that i teach in the master of law negotiation and mediation we had a lot of uh interaction there and it was sometimes easier because you could very easily switch to between persons um, but then the other side of the medal is that you saw a lot of professors just recorded their lectures and put them online and then you have way less interaction there's not not yeah, possible the same is for students some some students prefer the passive way of yep. learning things so it's very difficult to yeah, approach students in that way yeah i think that's true it's it's as a as an as a teacher i i find it sometimes difficult to get people outside of their comfort zone and actually have them participate although students will probably always tell you it's it's nicer if there's a nice discussion in class it's more interesting but actually having them participate in it is is difficult. I think what really helps, for example, we do an LCM student association, we do it from day one and we really start by asking questions and using the Socratic method. Yeah, but in LCM student association, you're only with 40 students and yeah. you're not with 400 students. So and that I definitely helps. Difference. And you're there with, with highly committed students and, and that's also why it works, for example, in, in, in Harvard or other universities where people have to apply and have to pay a lot of money to get in there, they're there highly committed and it's easier to have them participate. Um, yeah. What, what do you think it means? Because w that, that there are so many student organizations these days. Mm. It's definitely not something of the time of our parents. Yeah. Uh, it seems like it's from this generation that we see popping up everywhere in initiatives of students that you bring uh, that you teach competencies to students that they might not come across at their uh, education. What do you think it means that there's a hype around that? Right um, I, I don't think it's a hype. I think it's here to stay. Uh, it teaches, I think it, it shows a couple of things. First, that it's um, there's a, like a, a need or a desire to distinguish yourself from your fellow students. Uh, I think uh, we, we, at our opening lecture, we invited uh, somebody from the Delta Works, the company, uh, or, uh, yeah, I think so. And he really said that nowadays, work your employers are looking for ways to distinguish yourself because everyone has a university degree. Uh, so that's what students are looking to do. And universities don't always teach you mainly the soft skills and or how things work in practice. And I think most of the, the student associations that you see in Leuven at least, um, and they have been growing, they focus on, on soft skills. Uh, you have LCM, but you also have debating clubs, you have uh, academics for companies looking at consulting projects and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things going on around this, this having more competences and, and not only just the knowledge you learn in class. And do you think it's a duty for, uh, for the university to teach soft skills as well it's, it's a difficult question i think the advantage of a university of course is yet you have a good framework of teaching you have you can hire people who know a lot about it and a student organization you don't know how good the classes are 
Um, on the other hand, teaching soft skills is very difficult in a sense. You you often need to have small groups, people who want to learn the soft skills. Um, so I think I like to work on, on two levels, that the university does some of the work. For example, with the Faculty of Law, they have a mandatory course in negotiation and mediation. Uh, it's uh, 12 classes, six lectures and six interactive workshops. Um, but that's, of course, not enough to teach everything. And then you have student associations who go more in debt, uh, give you more individual feedback instead of a group of 400 or, or 70 people. You have a group of 20, 30. You do one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching with these people. And that's that's how you learn even more, of course. So there's, I think they, they actually can, can help each other if the universities do something and then the student associations can complete what the universities cannot do. Yeah, maybe another way to put it, to what extent do you think the uh, the competency of a university to teach their students something is in function of how many student organizations surround that university? Hmm. Can you give an example of what you mean? Yeah, let's say uh, you have one university in Germany and mm -hmm. there's a surprisingly big amount of student organizations that tries to teach students something extracurricular. Curricular, mm. is it then um, wise to conclude that there's a fundamental lack in the curriculum of those universities? That's what I mean yeah. about. So you're trying to get me to criticize my employer, the KU Leuven. Uh, <laughs> is, it your, is it your employer? <laughs> yeah, I'm currently yeah. working as a as okay. a teaching assistant at the KU Leuven. Uh, are there relatively more student associations here in Leuven? Uh, I th I think so. I, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe it's just that I'm I have the, that's the availability bias. You you. You, you know what you see, of course. What you see is all there is. Um, but I, I think Leuven has a lot of them in comparison to other uh, universities. I don't think it's only because Leuven does worse than other universities in, in teaching competencies. I think it's that there's a large student body which allows niche organizations to, like, like LCM, Student Association, it's kind of niche in a sense. We, we only teach 30, 36 students, but negotiation and mediation, it's not very general. Um, in a sense, I mean, a lot of people think of it like that way. I think it's very generally applicable. Um, but probably if you have smaller universities, you will have um, more general student organizations only. And there's not enough students to make it worthwhile um, to actually organize activities for them. So I, I don't think it's showing that the University of Kai Leuven is doing a bad job, although I do think it could do better in teaching soft skills. Um, but I actually, I think it's a good thing that students nowadays have so much choice uh, to to learn things also in their free time. Maybe this was as close to a non-disclosure that we could get <laughs> <laughs> for your employer. I think so. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I asked that because um, it seems that it becomes more and more paramount for a student to mm. have extra curricular activities on your uh, curriculum vitae. Mm. And... It's maybe maybe it's extreme to put it that way, but it seems that like it's even more important what you do besides your diploma than yeah. the diploma you eventually uh, receive. Of course, you have to have it as a baseline, but that's not enough for your future employer these days. I feel yeah. maybe I'm wrong in that. Yeah, part. I, I think it, it depends on the on your career perspective. Of course, if you're gonna do a PhD at the university, your grades matter a lot. Mm. Um, but if you're going to work at a company, they probably won't even ask you what your grade was. Um, and it's more how you actually operate in a team and uh, how project driven you are. 
And, and of course, the risk is that with all these students working on, on doing extra hours on learning on the site and their free time creates some stress for some people. I think if you have the feeling that you're, you don't, you're not part of a student association because you want to learn stuff, but because you have to, um, then I think we're, we're doing it badly. And I, at the moment, I don't have that impression. And I think students are, a lot of students still do fine without having anything. Uh, on without having done anything on the site, and that and that's fine. I think it's not every it, being a student is already tough enough, especially in these times. Mm. Um, but there's always going to be people who want to do more, who are just fascinated by a topic and want to learn more about it. In uh, one of our previous podcasts with uh, Jeroen van Nuyt, he is um, specialized in HR tech. So, mm. and he we were we were having a discussion about the degree inflation, mm. and he was saying, yeah, in the future maybe the degree will not be the, that important uh, as it is now. There will be more like everyone has a set of skills, and then you, yeah, you can hire the gig economy. Yeah, yeah the gig economy. You can hire this these skills from someone. And everyone mm. is like a freelancer. Do you believe in that vision? Uh, I think it's probably partly true. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about more than I do. Uh, on the other end, I always think that there's the, there's a role for specialists uh, as well. Um, I think to some extent I'm I'm one as well, um, having studied for a very long time now. Basically, since I've started university, I haven't stopped studying. I mean, if you're doing a PhD. You're constantly reading up on your field of research. I've done an LLM. I've done summer schools. I'm still taking courses. And I think there's a role for that in, in acquiring knowledge. And, and the world is becoming more complex. And we need to have a good understanding of it. Uh, so I, I think a degree... And, and there's no easy way to show everyone that you have this knowledge. And that's where the degree is a signal. Um, on the other hand, because there's so much knowledge out there and you can't know everything, it's also really important that you have skills of uh, that you're able to acquire knowledge or to work together with people who know it. So I think there's a role for these people, generalists as well, but they have to work together with specialists to some extent. Yeah, but if you in the gig economy, there are, are also maybe specialists yeah. like someone only learn about programming in one particular mm. programming language. So in a university, if you study um, engineering, computer science, you have all kind of mathematics, uh, other kind of sciences, chemistry, and all kind of subjects like that. This maybe the guy who has done a bachelor's degree or only courses for programmers mm. even more specialized. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And I think there's a role for both. You need, you need people who, who know one thing very well and you need to know people who actually have a lot of skills of, of just bringing a team together of specialists, for example, and, and managing them towards a good result. Mm. But concerning extracurricular activities, I can only um, uh, like advise college students <laughs> to do it more because I, it seems like we started Terexkailuven in, in our masters. Mm. And it seems right now I'm bitten by the extracurricular thing. And then there's so much interesting initiatives. It seems like, damn, if only I had known that in my first bachelor. Yeah. Uh, so... That's, yeah. It's definitely super interesting to see what else your environment can yeah. offer besides your studies. And what, what I see is that 
people like yourself who 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 do one thing also start to get involved in other things and the fact that Miklas is a part of LCM and also organizing TEDx organization um, it shows that it's it's often the same people you meet people who are highly motivated to do stuff they're also interested in other stuff and and there's a small group of students who's doing a lot of the things and there's yeah, a big like, mass like like snowball effect if you yeah. hear something here in a podcast you're immediately interested in that topic and you read something about it and then it's not just a line on the resume it's mm. it's 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 like getting to know yourself better during your your uh, university uni yeah. life and i think that's the aim of uni life to get to yeah. know yourself so do you have one last uh, message to students in general to mm. students uh, worldwide maybe um, because we talked so much about uh, negotiation or uh, no matter what message you want to give uh, what can students do to improve your their negotiation style to say so yeah that's uh, now I know that those are my last words I have to think carefully what I I have to say and I think I like also Mikolas and last words saying that whatever you do you have to do it for the right reasons with authenticity and I think maybe if I have to link that to negotiation, I, I think um, try to become an authentic negotiator, which has an, who has an open mind and trying to understand other people, because I think that's fundamental to, to being a good negotiator, that you're really genuinely interested in listening to other people, trying to understand them and just trying to do that every day of your life um, and try to become better at it. Read the books, talk to other people about it, go become a part of LCM if, you're, if you like it, um, uh, or another student organization about negotiation. Um, but most importantly, try to practice it in your daily life with your friends. And I think truly that if we would all do that, that we are making the society a little bit better um, by having a more productive way to solve conflicts between each other. Tom Vos, thank you very much for this nice conversation in this uh, cozy setting. And uh, maybe tell people where, uh, if, if you publish, if you have a medium to publish your findings or your research or anything that, that you're reading for the moment, uh, is there a medium where people can follow you? Um, they can definitely follow me on, on LinkedIn uh, or check out my SSRN page for my publications. Uh, I think that's it. Thank you guys for hosting me. It was really fun to have this conversation. And yeah, no problem. Okay. Stop. 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 We had some extra time with Tom Vos. This was episode 14 of season 2. And we hope you will listen to another interesting episode next week. I want to thank Baptiste Vos again and Paul de Pet for the music. Till next week, guys.